All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, dude? Not much. We're on the, I believe we're on the back end of everybody in my house dealing with coronavirus. It was like one person got it. And then another, I live with my parents and my siblings uh, with my kids. So it's like a really big home we're all jammed in here and so as soon as one person got it <laughs> it's like everybody coursed through the whole place um however i still can smell nothing i have absolutely no sense of smell josh which <laughs> which in many ways is like kind of a good thing <laughs> like, <laughs> i guess it depends like are any of your kids at that like rebellious i'm not trying to take a shower stage so then it's maybe good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my oldest is, and he's there. he's definitely getting to that place where he probably should take one every day. There you um, go. Puberty, and, uh, just around except the Except the worst, <laughs> the worst part about it, Josh, is like, I'm also at that place where it's like, I can't smell anything. So I'm like, oh, I, I'm, I smell great. Like, I don't need to take a shower. <laughs> today. And I'm sure other people are like, dude, something is not good. <laughs> Yo, so... I just, it's, I feel great. So <laughs> I have this thing called OCD. I take a shower when I wake up and before I go to bed, regardless. Wow. So <laughs> I'm always well, I mean, staying I typically clean. Do, I typically do too, but because I was doing a lot of things outside of my realm that like, you know, with the kids in the morning and making dinner and, you know, laundry and chores and the kids are still, are still in virtual school. So like, you know, kind of watching them with all that. And mm. just sometimes like I realize I have the utmost respect for stay-at-home parents at this point, like even more than I've ever had before. Cause like the things that I wanted to do, like, forget it. <laughs> right and on. so you, you learned how to do all that. So, um, but we're, we're on the back end. So I feel like we're, we're, we're coursing through, we're almost done, which is Sweet. awesome. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good news here uh, to hear, man. Uh, we're glad it wasn't worse. Cause you know, everybody hasn't had that, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say the Corona experience was positive, but the results thus far have been positive. That hasn't been everyone's experience. So yeah, we're, we're super grateful, grateful that. that we're super grateful. We haven't had uh, any hospitalizations uh, constantly and consistently praying for those that have, because I know it's a reality everywhere and it still is a reality and it's going to be for a while. So we're not trying to make light of anybody's uh, of our plight based on anyone else's, but it's, we've, we've, 
we've been very fortunate. So, Hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, I think there's probably something more important and far more interesting we can talk about than our showering (laughs) habits. And uh, (laughs) we have somebody here today that's going to help us do that. And I'm excited about this. Uh, Today, we have New York Times bestselling author, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for adding that New York Times bit. I sometimes (laughs) forget, but that sounds good to me. Yeah, I had to drop it in there. The um, my, I mean, my first experience engaging with you and, and your work was through uh, the Color of Compromise, um, and so that's that's an important book. I really enjoyed it. Big time eye opening for me, and um, yeah, so I, I have to throw that out there. That's an that's a, a big feat, and it's important. So I wanted to drop that little nugget <laughs> in there for you. Your checks in the mail. I appreciate that. Right on. Right on. <laughs> Well, Jamar, before we really get into stuff, we just have a few bio questions we like to ask uh, just to get to know everyone that comes on. Uh, the first one's kind of silly, but it's our favorite, one of our favorite questions. Uh, who's your favorite ice hockey team? <laughs> obviously, well, not obviously, but I'll say I'm not a huge hockey fan or professional hockey uh, follower. I grew up in the Chicagoland area, so root for the Blackhawks when, whenever they went. I don't know how they're doing. I don't keep up with that. Um, but I also went to the University of Notre Dame for undergrad, and they have a pretty storied hockey team from what I understand. So yeah. if they're winning, I'm rooting. Yeah, my uh, my college um, hockey team played Notre Dame all the time. I went to Northern Michigan University, so we would – play against them on a fairly regular basis. Uh, and I don't recall us ever really having that much luck against, you know, uh, but I'm also, I live in the Chicago suburbs. So Blackhawks all the way. Uh, you, uh, you joined David Fitch and uh, I think um, Josh, who was the other recent? Oh, it was uh, Scott McKnight said Chicago Blackhawks, even though he wasn't necessarily a huge fan either. So, um, <laughs> but that's okay. You're, you're joining the ranks of the best of the best on the podcast. So that's, that's <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, and then another sort of bio question we like to ask, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you, what you do? Sure. I think a lot of my story is, is wrapped up in my sort of geographic journey, but I mean, you know, the business card profile, I'm CEO of the witness Inc. We have two divisions, the black Christian collective and the witness foundation. I, uh, am a PhD candidate in history at the university of Notre Dame. So I should be writing right now and all the time. Um, I'm also an author of two books now, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism, and just releasing on January 5th, 2021 is my latest book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. In my career, I've been uh, a teacher and a seminary student and all kinds of other things, but that's where we are now. Awesome, that's great. Thanks for that. And then I guess just one other quick bio question that we'd like to ask. Um, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And so what would you say is the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink? It's hard to encapsulate. Um, I think it falls under the broad head, heading of decolonizing my faith is a phrase that you'll hear often. Uh, but in particular, separating what I had learned of Christianity from 
the whiteness that was embedded in it and the racism that was imported in it. And so decolonizing my faith has included things like rethinking who we look to as uh, theological exemplars. Um, many of the people held up in my uh, formal and informal um, formation as a Christian were racist, segregationists, even slaveholders. And yet uh, that was seldom mentioned whenever their names or their books or their works were brought up. Another aspect of decolonizing my faith has been um, uncovering the riches of the black church tradition uh, as a historic uh, marginalized and oppressed community, but uh, remaining faithful in the midst of that and, and formulating a faith that pushed back against racism and oppression. Um, and then lastly, a big part of not just decolonizing my faith, but 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 constructing it is uh, the study of history and understanding that our theology is uh, expressed through actions. And that's what I love about history is that whatever you say are your beliefs, whatever you say is your theology, uh, what you do actually reveals what you truly believe. And so that's what history tells us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I have my undergraduates in history. Um, so I, I understand and I, I empathize, but also enjoy uh, so much of that. And uh, I think the best students of history are always learning. Uh, <laughs> it's never a, it's never a one and done kind of deal. So yeah, thanks for the work you're doing. Sweet. Well, uh, Jamar, today we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, your latest book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Uh, but before we get specifically to that book, I actually wanted to ask you a question in regards to The Color of Compromise, which is your first book you mentioned. Um, for listeners who have no idea what that is, can you just give like a like the short elevator pitch of Color of Compromise? But then what I wanted to know is, um, are these two books connected at all? And if so, how are they? The Color of Compromise is a historical survey of the church's complicity in racism, specifically the white church's complicity in racism. And, and the thesis of that book is while the Ku Klux Klaners and the people lynching folks and holding the nooses get all the attention, those most extreme acts of racism don't happen unless there's a huge swath of people who sort of look the other way, remain silent or passively or even actively cooperate with those extreme forms of racism and violence. And so what I wanted to do in The Color of Compromise was attempt to capture some of that complicity, some of the ways that Christians uh, refuse to confront racism and instead uh, cooperated with it. And so it goes from the colonial era on up to the present day era of Black Lives Matter and shows through primary resource and documentation and historical records, just all the ways Christians missed it when it came to uh, racial justice. And honestly, you know, the entire book is 11 chapters long. The first 10 chapters are just a setup. I just want you to get to the last chapter, which is called The Fierce Urgency of Now, uh, which is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in 1963. And that chapter tackles some of the practical ways that we can address racism, everything from taking down Confederate monuments to commemorating Juneteenth to talking about reparations. And um, it is it is 
a model. It is um, based on a model I call the arc of racial justice, which stands for awareness, relationships, commitment. And I think you need all three of those aspects to have a holistic approach to racial justice. And then the second book comes along as sort of an expansion of that last chapter in The Color of Compromise. The two can be read independently. You don't need to go in order. You don't need to have read one to understand the other. But they do fit together nicely because it's almost like going to a doctor. This is the analogy I use in The Color of Compromise. When you go to a doctor, you're not feeling well. You sit in the doctor's office. The doctor comes in to see you. What would you do if she immediately prescribed you a medication without ever hearing from you? without ever taking your vitals, without ever uh, asking you what your symptoms are. You wouldn't really trust the prescription she gave. Rather, you would want a doctor to sit down, say, tell me what's going on. Does it hurt here? What there? When did it start? All of that stuff. That's the color of compromise. That's the diagnosis part. How did we get here? How to fight racism is take two of these and call me in the morning. Uh, it is what do we do now that we understand a bit of the problem? And so that's how they kind of fit together. That's great. Uh, well, so then I guess as we're talking about how to fight racism, it seems like it's, to me, it's an obvious answer, but I, I obviously want to know directly from you, who is this book for? I mean, is it just for white people? Is it just for people of color? I mean, who is this book for altogether? That's never as straightforward an answer. Uh, uh, that It's never as, as straightforward an answer as it, it sounds like, because it's a very straightforward question. It is a book for anyone who is dissatisfied with the status quo. Um, that is admittedly a broad category, but I do think in a way it is very much for white people and white Christians. And I say this in the introduction of the book, the reason why I address it to white Christians in, in particular is because historically white Christians have been such a big part of the problem. <laughs> they need to be part of the solution as well. And so this is an offer and an invitation to be part of the solution. Um, at the same time, it's I, I really want black people and people of color to read it. Uh, I think that looking at a book with the title How to Fight Racism, somebody who's part of a racial or ethnic minority group might say, well, I already know that. I've been doing it. I've been living it. And that is certainly true to a degree. But we can always be honing our craft and improving our practice. We could also stand to be um, motivated and uh, re-inspired, which I think this book will do. And then lastly, um, even beside the practical aspects, I think there's another sort of hidden benefit of the book, which is in every chapter, it's basically structured the same way. There's usually an opening story or anecdote that kind of leads into the content. And then there's two sections. One is called uh, racial justice practices, which gets to the practical aspects, but the other is called essential understandings. And I really hope people read those sections carefully because those essentially outline the, the, my philosophical approach and theological approach to, to race and understanding uh, racial issues. So I think that people across the racial and ethnic spectrum would uh, benefit from just the articulation of how to think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved the, um, I loved how you broke down the book overall. It, it, I mean, it made it super easy to read, but then it was so, um, I like how, how you give the, the argumentation and then like, here's what you can do about it. Here's the thing. Here's what you can do about it. Here's what, you know, and um, 
at least so far in my experience, um, a lot of times with, you know, we've talked with different, different people like uh, Drew, Dr. Drew Hart and Dr. Dennis Edwards and uh, talking to them or, or to, you know, various other um, uh, people of color, uh, theologians, scholars, whatever they may be. Uh, sometimes when the question is asked, okay, so clearly this racism stuff is a major issue. What do we do now? A lot, sometimes the answer you will receive as well, like <laughs> white people kind of made the problem. You guys need to do some work to find out, the, figure out the solution. Cause we, you know, people of color, we have other work to do. And so all that to say, like, why did you then write this book? Like, cause I think there's a nuance there. It's not as just straightforward as, well, obviously racism's a problem. Right, right. So they make a very good point. Black people and people of color didn't create the problem of racism and white supremacy. Um, and so therefore, we shouldn't necessarily be expected to, to clean up the problem. But the reality is we're all affected by the problem. And so then the question is, what do we do? So as um, a, a black person, I really can't wait around for more white people to quote unquote, get it and to start doing something about it. Um, also, since we're all caught up in this system, we all need to be part of this solution in various ways. Now, I think the nuance is um, how we get involved and, and where the responsibility for certain things falls. So in the book, I do specifically address black people and people of color, but it's in a different way. And so one of the practical aspects I talk about is, you know, how do you know when it's time to leave a predominantly white organization? And I list a, a series of questions, you know, are there black people in leadership? Do they have a budget that actually gives them, you know, power within the organization? Have you attempted to go through uh, their grievance policy and, and, and walk through all of the, the ways they, they outline for you to bring up an issue? And how has that been received, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's very different, you know, that, that is targeted specifically toward black people and people of color. Um, there are also some, some practices in there that apply to anyone across the racial and ethnic spectrum. One of my favorite ones is something that, that anybody can do as soon as they finish listening to this podcast. All you need is a pen and paper or a keyboard and screen. And what you can do is write your own racial autobiography. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be complicated, but, but what I encourage people to do is very intentionally and consciously look back in your own past and at your own experiences specifically around the topic of race. So I ask questions like, what's your earliest memory of race? What's your most positive memory associated with race? What's your most negative memory? Um, how did your parents talk about race? Did they talk about race? Those kinds of things are good for anyone uh, no matter your race or ethnicity, because we can all stand to understand our own story better when it comes to this topic. So the book really has a lot of information in there uh, for both uh, black and people of color, as well as white audiences. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Just that idea of the racial autobiographies. I mean, I can't, I can only imagine as people start writing on their, <laughs> about themselves, their eyes begin to open immediately as they start realizing, you know, wow, a lot of this has like been really easy for me or, uh, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe these experiences that I've just kind of set aside as isolated, but never put together. Uh, that's, that's really great. Um, so within how to fight racism, you really, I feel like you build the whole book on the concept of what you call the arc of racial justice. And you mentioned this already. Um, can you explain what you mean by this and why it's so important? 
Yes, it's it's deliberately simple because I'm very simple minded myself. So I needed something I could remember, uh, but I also hope it's a helpful framework for others. And so it's pretty self-explanatory awareness. That's all the knowledge, data, information you need to understand race, racism, white supremacy. What does that look like? That's listening to this podcast episode and hopefully sharing it with your friends so they can listen. That is uh, reading the books. That's going to the conference. You know, all of the ways that we gain knowledge. Uh, relationships. This one's a little tougher to explain because we've gotten it wrong more than we've gotten it right when it comes to relationships. But I fundamentally believe that that reconciliation and racial justice have to include a human element. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, we understand that all reconciliation is relational and that when God wanted to reconcile a people to God and to each other, God didn't send a, a tweet or a TikTok video. God sent Jesus Christ, a person, to be in relationship with us. And I think that that sort of incarnational nature of reconciliation sets an example for us that this has to be embodied and it has to be intentional where we're reaching out to people who are different from us. And then lastly is the commitment aspect. And that gets to the fact that racism operates not just on the level of personal prejudice, but also through policy. And so relationships are great and awareness is great. You can watch the documentaries, you can uh, listen to the podcast, you can have the heart to heart conversation with someone, but none of that's gonna do a thing about issues like mass incarceration or voter suppression or disparities in drug sentencing laws. So we've gotta work on a, a, a legal level, a policy level, and a, and, a, and a practice level in terms of our systems and institutions to actually reshape how we interact with one another. Yeah, we have a, a great friend of, part of the podcast, Drew Hart, who uh, mm -hmm. talks about relationships. And one of the ways he, he talks about it is, is um, like we had him on a few and I mentioned, oh, you know, as a kid, I remember my family always talking about how everyone was equal, you know, and, and black people and Mexican people and every race and color, everyone is the same. And he said, but the question you need to ask yourself is how often did your family have those types of people over or how often did you go over to those people's houses to do things with them? And so just saying we're equal isn't enough. The relationship needs to be there. Otherwise, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So that was just a really groundbreaking a story for me. Along those lines, um, the, it was a board of trustees member at the seminary I attended. Uh, this is right around the time when the movie The Help came out, which is about, you know, domestic laborers um, in Jackson, Mississippi and sort of the oppression and racism they faced. And we had watched the, the film on campus and had a discussion with the other seminary students. And I remember um, running into this board member who had heard about it. And he told me in, you know, all confidence and I think he thought it was a good thing, but he said, you know, when I was growing up, we had the help and we treated her just like family. And I didn't have the wherewithal in that moment to, to ask that question. Well, how often did, you know, you go to her house or, you know, celebrate her kids' birthdays or sing, things like that. But it was such an interesting perspective that he could have that since his family employed a black person that almost he, he used that as cover to, to basically say, well, I'm not racist. And the reality is uh, a lot of white people, especially wealthy white people who could afford, you know, things like the help um, basically treated the the people who who helped them not dissimilarly than you would treat the family pet. 
with a lot of affection, genuine, you know, care and concern, but never on a level of equality. Yeah, that that reminds me too um, of a conversation I just had the other day. I have a good friend named uh, Javaska, and 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 he called me the other day, and I was talking to him, and uh, he was saying that he had an interesting experience recently. So Jay is in a uh, biracial relationship. He's engaged to a white woman. Uh, Jay is an African American male. Um, they have two beautiful kids. Uh, I love playing with their kids. They have so much energy, <laughs> but, uh, but Jay was telling me that he had, he was uh, painting like a, a room a ha- in a house with his uh, soon to be father-in-law and they disagree um, on a lot of things. Uh, this particular gentleman is, is a big time uh, Trump supporter. Um, I don't want to conflate racism and, and Trump supporters one and the same, although there's a correlation um, for some people anyway besides the point before I get myself in trouble, Jay said that he, there was a conversation that just broke his heart as they were painting. They were talking about different things and slavery came up somehow. And Jay was talking about uh, how slavery is still, you know, very much a thing today. I uh, was talking about the 13th amendment, all this kind of stuff. And his father-in-law in a passing comment said, Oh, well, yeah, I guess slavery was bad, but at least we got all that free labor. Yes, that listeners, there you should see the reaction on uh, Jamar's face and it's the wow emoji. Yeah. Yes, the wow exactly. And and Jay is not a man who expresses emotion, but he said he went home and he cried the entire way home. He left and cried the entire way home because this relationship of trust that he had just shattered, you know, uh, before him. So the relationship bit is is so is so think- huge. I just want to pause there a minute because you brought yeah. up something that is super important that I don't think a lot of people understand is the unpredictability of racism is one of its most pernicious effects. So think about that situation. It's, a, it's, it's as mundane as you can be painting a room and you don't go into that expecting your entire dignity, history and culture to be insulted. Right. But that's how it functions. It's 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 almost like verbal terrorism. The way terrorism works is that it's unpredictable and unexpected. And it causes carnage because it impacts just folks going about their regular everyday life. And that is what is so, one of the things that's so exhausting about racism is that you always have to be on your guard because you never know when you're going to be painting with your father-in-law and, and, you know, they're just going to lob a grenade into your emotional landscape. Uh, You never know. I mean, Breonna Taylor was asleep in her apartment when police came kicking down the door and killed her in a hail of bullets um you know uh uh when we're driving and we get pulled over my goodness the the adrenaline the heart palpitations that come from knowing that a routine traffic stop could end with you in jail brutalized or even killed uh as a black person or a person of color that is one of the things that i think is really hard especially for white people to understand is that you're always sort of 
cringing um, mentally and emotionally for the next blow to come. And it's 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 traumatic, you know. It's 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 in fact the the response of being in an abusive relationship where you're always expecting, you know, the next movement to be a punch, and not just oh, I was picking up my car keys. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that like, I just, I remember having a, a conversation um, not too long after uh, the Ahmad Arbery uh, situation. And uh, a pastor friend of mine, he's been on the show, uh, his name's Keith. Um, he invited me into a private Zoom call with himself and three other, uh, three other pastors, all black men. Uh, Keith is a black male as well. And it was basically a panel discussion with these four pastors, the youngest in his early 20s, like myself, uh, or actually younger than I am. I'm 26. This guy's about 23. Um, all the way up to a gentleman who's been serving in ministry longer than I've been alive. You know, he was in his seventies. And the whole point of the zoom call was for these four people to process the event with other people there just to watch. I was muted the whole time. Couldn't say nothing, just watching. And the stories that these gentlemen told um, about like, you know, having just to smile when you go to the grocery store or keeping your receipt in your hand when you're leaving a store, like all this stuff that I had would never have thought about. Um, that was one of the most life changing experiences for myself was being invited into that. And that stemmed from relationship that then for me, the relationship is what started to bring the awareness. And now for me, the bit that I've been struggling with is the, the commitment part, the C in arc. And so that's why I was so excited about this book is because this, the C piece is there. You know, and um, one of the, the things that we're trying, my, my wife and I have been talking about this for a, a, a while. Um, neither one of us grew up in a community that was racially diverse at all, um, like zero. <laughs> and uh, currently where we live, I'm in a place called Mount Airy, Maryland, um, in the woods. It's not very racially diverse at like also zero. And we don't want our kids growing up with that. And so my wife and I, I uh, just purchased a house in Baltimore city. Um, and we want to be able to move into a community that is diverse and also into a community that cares for one another and into a community that we can, uh, you know, learn from and participate in. Um, and so hopefully that's a, a step in the right direction for us. And uh, we're excited about that. You bring up a crucial point of how do we intentionally uh, dismantle uh, racist systems and, and, and the fact that we're all sort of caught up in it and implicated in it. And even where we live is, uh, something that we have to take under consideration. So, uh, I talk about residential segregation a bit there and challenge people to, to do just what you did. You know, you might have to move if you don't want your family, uh, in a, a racially homogenous situation. Uh, oftentimes that means relocating or alternatively, you might have to stay in a neighborhood that is, uh, the demographics are changing and you see a lot of wealthier people or white people flying out of those, of those areas, you may choose to stay. I think it also hits even closer to home where we send our kids to school and what kind of environment, right? Because test scores are one thing and those sort of academic outcomes, but where do we rank the experience of being around different people? 
and our kids having the chance to interact with folks from uh, different races, ethnicities, and cultures, does that factor in at all? Uh, and then, of course, our churches as well. And, and all of the, you know, the famous phrase, 11 o'clock a.m. is the most segregated hour on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. Well, all of that's downstream from what is happening Monday through Saturday uh, in our residential segregation and our school segregation, et cetera. So, yeah, when the, when the commitment aspect comes, we're going to have to take stock of the fact that we're all caught up in these racist and oppressive uh, systems. Um, so how do we, even within those systems, even as we're trying to change those systems, uh, push back on a personal and a, and a family and even a, a church congregation level? Yeah, that um, <laughs> also reminded me too, I guess within the realm of commitment, I recently was listening to uh, our friend, Dr. Drew Hart on a, a podcast and he was talking about, so he teaches at Messiah University, which is where I went. I missed him by one year. Uh, but, but that's where I graduated from. Uh, but Drew was saying, you know, talking about uh, teaching this uh, freshman uh, seminar class, uh, I think he calls it like the history of blackness or something like that. Um, and he says it's really interesting because, uh, especially with white males in his class, he had a really interesting uh, situation where everybody got it. They understood like, wow, you know, this is a problem, systematic racism, I understand it. Like they, they were there. But then these two white male students raised their hands and pushed back and said, okay, Dr. Drew or Dr. Hart, um, with all this like, you know, reconciliation stuff, what happens to white people then? And, and Drew was like really taken aback. He didn't know how to respond. Um, but to me, that's, there's the commitment piece. You can understand, but then, or maybe you fully don't understand if you're asking that question. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just, I thought that tied in nicely as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so one of the things that struck me, Jamar, as I was reading the book and particularly just in the introduction as you were going like chapter one, you, you talked kind of about you've been called all sorts of different things simply for standing up for black America, essentially, and <laughs> simply for saying things about how black people are, have rights to, and then, you know, just saying those things, you've been called a heretic and a Marxist and the liberal and, you know, just all sorts of things, you, you know, and all these types of things like critical race theory and uh, intersectionality have been deemed unbiblical and incompatible with the gospel. Um, but I feel like your book really is based a lot of just on the image of God. Can you break down that doctrine, help us explain? explain why this rubs people so wrong? Like, why do people feel so harshly about this? Yeah, let me, um, you know, this book arises out of a context. How to fight racism is an urgent issue for me because I experience it so often. And unfortunately, the most acute racism I've ever experienced has, has come from Christians. And so um, I, I, I put out a tweet just this morning And I said, uh, when I spoke up about President Trump um, in 2015 and 2016, when he was a candidate, this is what happened. And I just did this bullet point list. I'll read to you a few of them. I said, uh, Christians called the church elders to discipline me. Uh, They did hour-long takedowns of me on podcasts and YouTube videos. Uh, I had speaking and preaching engagements already planned and set up, and they uh, uninvited me 
from those engagements. They posted racist memes about me. Uh, they accused me, of course, of being a heretic and, and undermined my theology. Uh, they told me that uh, the Democrats were, were baby killers and no Christian could, could vote for a different party. They both sidesed me about the candidates in the election. They labeled me a Marxist, a liberal, and um, they called me woke as a pejorative. And that's just the beginning. And it even was even much worse for, for black women. And so um, I, I think folks need to understand there's an urgency behind this. Like this, this book, if you put into practice what it's talking about, it can prevent trauma for people, uh, or at least mitigate it, it can even save lives um, in, in a number of ways. And so, like, I hope folks don't think this is just another um, book to have on their shelves as sort of signaling, I'm not racist or I'm concerned about this stuff. I hope that it is part of a, a transformative journey that puts us on the path of being part of the solution here. So you mentioned in specific uh, the, the image of God. Um, that's a great point, and I want to make a point that this book is called Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, but it's really a book I think that's accessible to people of any tr faith tradition or, or, or no faith tradition at all. And the ways I talk about and root this book in Christianity are ways that I think anyone can access. And so when we talk about the image of God, what we're really talking about is the dignity of each person. In the Christian tradition, that dignity comes from the fact that the fingerprint of God is upon us all. And what that means is, I think this is such a critical doctrine in the book release event that I did that is on um, Facebook on uh, at, at the Witness BCC. I talk about the image of God uh, being of the same importance to the 21st century Reformation as the doctrine of salvation by faith alone was to the 16th century Reformation. Uh, that meaning there was a, a, a pivotal hinge in terms of a, a reimagining of Christianity uh, in, in, you know, 400 years ago, and in a similar way, if we're going to have a, a reformation in the 21st century, I think it hinges on this idea of the image of God, what humanity is, how we were created to be, and there, therefore how we should interact across different lines, of course, racial and ethnic, but also cultural, gender, sexual orientation, economic class, you name it. The image of God tells us how to interact with people who are different. And in the most pluralistic and diverse nation on earth, we better have a good grounding in the dignity of all people. Otherwise, as we're seeing now, we're not going to get along very well. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that is so absolutely true. I mean, we're, I, I, I hate to date the times that we record these episodes because there are sometimes, but I mean, like just, just with what happened two days ago in our capital, we're seeing um, from what I've started to really feel is um, America has lost the ability to understand what the image of God looks like in so many ways. Um, it's, and it's, we saw, we've seen it for decades with the black community and with people of color, but it really started to rear its head 
again this summer and it, or in late spring and over the whole summer. Um, I live um, 10 minutes from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I attended church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, I uh, know people who lost everything and all that stuff that happened up there. And, you know, at the risk of turning the conversation to something else, because I don't want to do that, but you, I watched what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and then I watched what happened on TV on Tuesday or Wednesday. And the similarities were there as far as what was happening and what people were trying to do, except the differences were there in what was happening to the people that were trying to do it. Um, and um, the lack of physical response um, that you saw. Uh, now, yes, I'm not going to deny I've, there were people that were shot. There were people that were killed. There were people that were injured in all of that. But just you take a step back from all that and you say, <clears throat> we've forgotten what the image of God is, I think, in many ways, um, because I think that people aren't even looking for it anymore. Um, and it's it's becoming heartbreaking because I've I mean, it's been heartbreaking, but it, it every time it happens, it, it brings you right back to that same place because you say, we we aren't even looking for it anymore. We're not even trying to find that. Um, so, of course, it's impossible for people who aren't willing to read this type of book or talk or have these types of conversations or form these relationships or make these commitments. Of course, it's hard for those people to even be, know where to begin because they haven't even they, they, they don't even have a place to start from because it, it, they, they're, they're just so far outside of that circle. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. that is, yeah. as, as I'm reading everything you're saying and, just, and hearing what you're talking about, that's just, it's hot on my mind. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunately, it, you know, a book like how to fight racism is unfortunately very timely um, in, yeah. in, 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 as we record this and, and really throughout this past couple of years. So I begin the book with these really, words I was I was I was quite um it felt risky to write and and the first sentence of the book is something is different this time and then I spend the next several uh paragraphs talking about the uprisings that occurred in the spring and summer of, of 2020 in support of racial justice um but I think it's important for us to remember what spurred this particular wave of protests and that was anti-black police brutality specifically in reference to the murder of George Floyd and that chilling video of a white police officer literally with his hands in his pocket and knee on the neck of a black man who, who, who said those chilling words that we've heard before from Eric Garner and so many others, I can't breathe. Um, but also in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder, um, Ahmaud Arbery's uh, lynching. And so it was in specific reference to issues of anti-black police brutality and vigilanteism uh, that that this wave of protests was there which goes to your point about essentially the disproportionate response of law enforcement to different groups of people out there demonstrating and it, it, it illustrates how the image of god in black people has been denigrated historically and systematically in this country such that even law enforcement is primed to automatically think of black people and our allies uh, who are protesting for racial justice as threats. So, 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 you know, in the immediate aftermath of this insurrection on January 6th, people were saying, you know, if they were black, you know what would happen. 
there, as we record this, five people uh, have been killed through this insurrection. If if there were, if this was a group of people of color, you can imagine that number would be exponentially higher. The arrest rate would be exponentially higher. The show of fourth force would be exponentially higher. All of those are signs of a lack of understanding of the image of God and people of African descent and the ways it has worked out systemically and institutionally in the United States. Yeah, and I think I saw a tweet this morning uh, from Reverend uh, Jackie Lewis, and she tweeted out, I think it, it captures this really well. She says, so damn tired of living in a country that treats black grief as a threat and white rage as a sacrament. Mm. And I was like, there it is. Right on par. She's a brilliant thinker. Yep. She is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, I don't know, that, that situation is still uh, so fresh. <laughs> On my mind, I think everybody's mind as well. And um, I, I don't know, I was listening to um, Propaganda does a podcast called Hood Politics, which is like one of my favorite things. <laughs> and I was listening to his most recent episode that he released yesterday. Um, and he was, I mean, he was talking about this and just essentially he was talking about how this is what happens um, when people who have been in power for a very long time uh, start to lose grip of that power. And mm -hmm. uh, there's um, a force uh, called white supremacy who has had power for a very long time. Um, and those things are starting to crumble. And it, it was almost like a I don't want to call it a last ditch effort because I don't think it's going to be the last <laughs> effort, but it was an effort at maintaining uh, that power. So, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, one of the things that I say, I, I've often said in recent months that this is the civil rights movement of our time. And, and I mean that quite literally that um, should the Lord tarry and we can look back 30, 40, 50 years from now, We'll look back on this period of the 2010s and the 2020s the same way we look back on the 1950s and 60s when it came to uh, racial justice activism. And so I say that to say, get up and get moving, be part of this movement. Uh, don't let it pass you by. But one of the, the signs I think that this is the movement is not just the progress or the protest, but also the opposition we face. And so we are seeing this acute, very public and very violent um, expression of white supremacy, uh, everything from the Proud Boys to the president, we're seeing it. And I think that is in direct response to this inflection point that we're at in our society where we could take a dramatically different turn in terms of racial justice. And the opponents of that are coming out in force, as we're seeing. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, it's, for me, it's crazy, because it's like, it, I feel like the, the experience, the, the events, whatever that, that happened yesterday, uh, was a really great demonstration of white privilege. And um, if people don't get it now, like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> when they will. And that's one of the most frustrating challenges for me, especially amongst uh, talking with church people, because church people seem to be some of the most um, counter 
productive to to the to this whole um, racial reconciliation and, and racial justice. And one quote that that really stood out to me, and I wanted to ask you specifically about this because this has been my one of my biggest areas of frustration and contention uh, is on page one fifteen. Um, where you say that some common deflections from racial justice resistors include the following. The people who keep talking about racism are the real racists. The problem is that black people or another racial or ethnic group want a handout and won't take advantages of their opportunities. Or so-called experts are just liberals with an agenda, you know, and more. And I've literally heard all three of those things said to me <laughs> by uh, white Christians. And I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't know how to then communicate with people who are bringing up these kind of objections. Do you have any insight that might be helpful there? I'll bet you do know what to do with that. Um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, I keep coming back to Jesus said, you know, go into towns and villages, you know, spread the word. But if they won't receive you, wipe the dust from your sandals and move on. Now, now people talk a lot about cancel culture. Jesus never canceled me. You can't just walk out on Christians. Jesus was not canceling people. I think Jesus was dignifying people with the uh, ability to choose where they wanted to be and how they want to respond to truth. Jesus didn't drag people kicking and screaming to a place they don't want to be. And neither can we do that in our racial justice efforts. And you mentioned this just a moment ago, the particular moment that we're in, in 2020, 2021, if people are still stonewalling you about racial justice right now, I don't have high hopes that you're going to make much progress with them in the near future. Because it's just too apparent how urgent this issue is. We've seen it in every kind of way you can imagine. And it's been broadcast on headlines, it's been hashtagged and tweeted, it's been discussed in churches and beyond. Like, if at this point you still don't get it, I think your energy is better spent figuring out what you can do to cooperate with the people who do get it. And I actually think that's honoring to the people who don't get it, because you're not saying to them, you have to agree with me. You're giving them the dignity of having their own mind, even if they're wrong. <laughs> and the other thing is this, this is the Christian thing, is that if they repent, the door is open for them to return. So it's never a once and for all thing, I'm done with you for eternity. It's if you listen to truth, if you with humility seek to understand and you want to move to a different place then there's space for you now you may have to play catch up and get extra after school tutoring but you can come along this journey with us but in the meantime i would hate for us to stop walking because we're waiting for other people to get it mm. well i wanted to ask a question it's it's not on our outline um, so sorry, Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling an audible here, <laughs> but um, you, you, you mentioned other Christians and dusting the dust or dusting the dust off your sandals and moving on. Can I just ask you, what, why, why do you think that, and maybe it isn't this way, but it certainly seems like the most pushback on this is coming from Christians. Yeah. What, why, why, why is that the case? Because it seems to me like they would be the ones that would want 
reconciliation, or maybe they're just not good at reconciliation in any way, shape or form anyhow. And so this feels like that same thing. And so it's hard. I don't know. Could you talk about that a little bit? That is a great question. Um, I think foundationally is that they can back up their bigotry with the Bible. We saw this in the antebellum period where uh, theologians, intelligent people, ignorant but intelligent people, used their theological skill to twist scripture into a, an apologetic for race-based chattel slavery and the idea that human beings could be reduced to property that could be owned, bought, sold, traded, all that stuff. Um, so it, 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 and then it becomes more resilient because it was so interesting in The Color of Compromise, um, I, I build on the work of Mark Knoll in his book, The Civil War as a Theological um, Struggle, because the question of slavery among Christians was not simply a political one or an economic one, it was a spiritual one. And the way that Southern pro-slavery theologians couched it was as a battle of, of the Bible. And they said that since the Bible never explicitly condemns slavery and we take the Bible literally, uh, we are the true Bible-believing Christians and it's you abolitionists who want to do funny things with God's word and say we should free the slaves even though the Bible talks about and regulates slavery, you guys are the ones who are, um, you know, drifting from the faith. So there's that piece that you baptize your bigotry with the Bible, but, and Robert P. Jones makes this point very explicitly and provocatively in his latest book, White Too Long. White We're Too interviewing Long. him soon. Yeah. So yeah, a couple weeks. Him, ask him that question because okay. he makes it explicit that it is the specific marriage of racism and Christianity that makes it um, makes white Christians even more likely to be racist than the general populace, and that is chilling when you think about it. But that matches with my experience. Like I said at the top of the show, the most acute racism I've ever experienced has come from Christians, and because. They're Christians because they they theologize this racism and white supremacy, and it's brutal to see. Yeah, and I think sometimes there tends to be, and I know we've all seen this before, Brian Zahn talks about this, and Shane Claiborne talks about this, just this marriage of being a Christian and feeling like you need to be a specific political party. And so then when those political parties talk about other things that don't have anything to do with faith in any way, shape, or form, you feel like you've got to kind of fall in line with that also. And if you don't fall in line with that also, then there's this paradigm that you can't really figure out. I I, I will say that um, in the wake of things happening in Kenosha with Jacob Blake, you know, I saw more church, more churches and more churched people stepping up and saying, okay, wait a minute, like something something is amiss here. I'm not sure how I missed it. I feel like I just first need to apologize that I've missed it for so long, but like something has to be done. And my pastor specifically is a, is a white man. His church is by far the biggest church in the city. And yet I saw him showing up not to lead events, not to teach people, but to be an advocate and stand alongside and just be a part and learn. Um, I have... I have been so encouraged by him as a, as a pastor 
and is a white pastor and is someone who easily could throw money at the problem or could say, hey, well, we're the biggest church in town. So we're going to be we're going to lead this rally in the city. We're going to invite some black pastors along and let them be a part of this. I didn't see that. What I saw was the opposite. He'd be at the events, but he never got on stage. He didn't ask to be the one that prayed at the end or something like that. And that's something that Drew Hart talks about as well as that as a white person, sometimes the best thing is to just is to not try to lead anything, but to show up and to be part, be a part of the solution. And I, so I, I want to make that caveat that I, I think there are churches and Christians that are starting to, and there's more now than I, than I think there's been in a while that are not wanting to stand by with the status quo anymore. And so I think this book is timely because I think to use the biblical analogy, the fields are ripe for people. I think people are ready to say, okay, now what do I do? And, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. I want to be a part of the solution. And so I think a book like this leads us in that right direction. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for, for championing that for us. Yes, I'm very encouraged. Um, One of the questions I got at the book release party is what does success look like for this book? And I think it's stories like the one you told. Um, I I would love to hear over the next few months and even years uh, stories of how churches, communities of faith, individuals took action to fight racism. And so when we do you know, the updated and revised edition of How to Fight Racism. I'm including your stories in there of of change and impact. Um, and by the way, if you're if your pastor is worried about throwing money at something, he can go to the witnessinc.com and uh, make a donation. We'd be glad to, to catch that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but yes, you're right. I think we are at um, a critical stage in the life of the church. I think there's a sifting going on in the church in the United States where there's a depressing amount of people who have chosen the side of the status quo of white supremacy and racism, but God always has a remnant in the church and God is always building the church. And I think what we're seeing is that people at great risk to themselves sometimes are taking the side of of racial justice and standing in solidarity with the oppressed. and, And that gives me hope. That gives me motivation. And it is so beautiful to see that this is happening really across racial and ethnic lines, that when we saw the protests in in 2020, there were some that were majority white, you know, and it wasn't just black people uh, protesting for their own lives, but but we had allies and advocates coming alongside of us. And so I would encourage people to look for those um, gleams of hope and those those beams of light, even in the darkness that we see. And uh, just for... Also, also with you, Zondervan um, sent Josh and I not just one copy each of the book for us to read, uh, but multiple copies of the book. And I, as we've been talking, and as Josh and I have been talking, as we've been reading it, starting to realize that the purpose of that might have been to just give these other copies to people and <laughs> say, you need to read this. You don't even need to buy it. Just have this and go, <laughs> like, just be a part of this. Now that you're right on the edge, just read this book. And it's going to get you to the place where you can start figuring out how. And uh, I'm I'm grateful for because when we had Drew on the first time, I, I said, "So what are we supposed to do?" Because I feel like it's easy as a white person to have this conversation on my podcast and then walk away and go back to my white family and my white life and not have to do anything more. So to have answers to the how gives me fuel to move on from this and do more afterwards. Yes. That, 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 that was my scheme all along. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Perfect. Yeah. Well, I think we just two more uh, things to mention. Um, if you're good on time, Jamar, I want to be fair to you. Um, but the, the one is that something that really stood out to me. And again, I mentioned this, the commitment section, uh, that kind of gave me like what I think is an important paradigm shift for myself. Um, in saying that, like, we need to orient our life to racial justice, that phrase, like, kind of just, like, hit me because it, it, it wasn't just so much something that, like, something we seek, but it, it becomes, like, a way that we that we be in the world. It's like our, our being has to embrace this um, racial justice. And so that paradigm shift for me was huge. It's like a – it's a posture. It's not just a, a line of thought or, like, a thing. That And that was huge for me. So um, – yeah, I love that you, you you highlighted that because it is it's it's a it's um it's an entire disposition, an entire reorientation of one's life, so that um you know fighting racism and and pursuing racial justice is is actually just the direction of your life. You do it every day in different ways. Um, it becomes almost like breathing, almost like eating healthy, right? If you can finally pull it off, it's it's just it's something you do every day, not just one day or one meal. You know, it's it's an entire almost lifestyle, if you will. And and that's what fighting racism has to be, because it's so pervasive in society, because it's in every sector. We just have to practice and build our skill to where it is almost second nature that we're thinking about it and, and trying to work to counteract um, the, the sort of racist momentum in our society. So I'm glad that stuck out to you. I, I that's a really important part of the book. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. I mean, it's almost as like uh, there's this dude that I heard of before, and he used to talk a lot about um, embracing a certain kind of lifestyle, a way of being in this thing he called the kingdom of God. And uh, I think this might have something to do with that. <laughs> I like that. I like Just that. a little bit. Yeah, I that might have heard of this one, too. Yeah, his name was Jesus. Uh, he's a pretty cool fellow. <laughs> and yeah, I I really dig that, man. And then just the last thing I wanted to just mention really briefly, because I think um, it's huge. And I just want to, you know, commend you in your efforts. Uh, recently, you have been uh, sharing articles and, and posting, uh, you know, blog posts and stuff about the, the SBC and the recent decision that the SBC made, or I should say the six white male presidents of the SBC made to uh, completely denounce critical race theory and intersectionality, deem it as incompatible with the gospel, um, and just kind of, you know, shut it down. And I, that has been, I mean, for me, when I read The Color of Compromise, and I saw uh, in your book that the SBC was literally founded on slavery, like that was how it was founded, that blew my mind. I grew up in the SBC. Mm. Um, now we were kicked out of the SBC because my brother is gay and the church mm. told us we couldn't be there anymore. Um, so that, I mean, that was my past with that. But um, yeah, that just, that like hit me a different kind of way, especially to know that that's the largest Protestant denomination in this country. Yeah. Um, and there are so many people uh, like I got an immense amount of pushback when I started sharing your articles about that, um, even from like different youth pastors in the area, like, hey, man, you can't be talking about my denomination like that. Um, like, but that's I don't know. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it, 
it's it's hugely important. I'm glad you named it. This is the time for naming, folks. Um, and I I don't mean that in a malicious way, but it 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 is such a time of moral clarity where people are declaring themselves um, and whether they're on the side of racial justice or not. And, and we need to tell our stories and share our testimonies uh, of, of hurt and pain. And I can um, imagine the trauma that, that, that you and your family went through, um, Josh, just with that experience in the SBC. And yeah, the, the six seminary presidents and um, you know what was, it, it's just so foolish because they could have just come out and said, hey, we, reaffirm the Baptist faith and message, have a good day. <laughs> but instead, they had to do this jab and say critical race theory is wholly incompatible with the gospel and the Christian faith. And what they did was throw everyone working for racial justice under the bus, um, at least everyone who was working for it in a way they didn't approve of. Uh, from what I understand, this was um, pretty much uh, the issue forced by, by one of the seminary presidents in particular. And um, that person also before the presidential election said as a christian he couldn't vote for anyone but a republican presidential candidate for the foreseeable future um, and has not repudiated that even after this insurrection at the capitol so i think what happened is i mean it's a long story but basically uh, a lot of the people who they use critical race theory as a pejorative label in order to put people in a box put them on a shelf and ignore what they're saying and what they're trying to do. And basically anybody who talks about systemic racism or about things like white privilege or something like that gets lumped into this category of critical race theory, Marxist, liberal, whatever label you want to use. And because it's basically the only sort of, sort of permissible way to address race for these folks is to just say uh, what King called uh, pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities. They'll say racism is wrong. They'll say we're all equal and then do absolutely nothing about the inequality that actually exists in society. And then they'll attack the people who are trying to do it as somehow um, theologically suspect, heretical, unorthodox, whatever you might use. And uh, it's disgusting to see it has led to a black exodus that trickle is becoming a flood. And then it's not even just black people, it's other people of color and even some white people too, who are just fed up and disgusted that uh, people place more authority on the US constitution than they do on the word of God and um, have more loyalty to a president than the Prince of Peace. And they're sick of it. And what I would say by way of encouragement is there's more than one expression of Christianity in this country and in the world the SBC does not have a monopoly on what it means to be a Christian. Most specifically, its leaders don't have a monopoly. Uh, I would encourage folks that <laughs> before you abandon the faith altogether, uh, look to uh, the, the Christian traditions that have developed in marginalized communities. I get so discouraged when people just turn their back on Jesus and they've never even looked into, say, the black church. And the historical tradition there, uh, because they think that the only way to be Christian is is what they've been hurt by and what they've seen, and haven't ever accessed uh, the genius and the knowledge and the spiritual reservoirs that reside in other communities of faith. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, even mm. oh, sorry, Marty, I was going to say no, even I was just agreeing. <laughs> yeah, <great>. and <laughs> and even but even directly being told, I remember being told, do not read someone like James Cone because he's a heretic. 
you can't listen to those people because their theology is suspect. Yep. So it, it's just crazy, man. So thank you for what yeah. you're doing there. And, and, uh, and sort of like you said earlier, I mean, you were, you were talking about, you know, these different people turning away from things and saying that someone's going to say, well, you know, racism is wrong, but then they're not going to do anything to then back those words up. I mean, it all comes together when an entire denomination does that. It's literally like your parents saying racism is wrong, but not ever having a black person over for dinner or the other way around. <laughs> it's the same, just on a much larger, larger, larger scale. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. Well, Jamar, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, but where, where can people find you? How can they interact with you? How can they support you and the things you're doing? Yeah, please buy the book, How to Fight Racism. It is prime for a book study and, and for walking through it in groups. I recommend you do a six-week study on the book itself, but then you schedule a couple other meetings, two or three, where you actually sit down and say, okay, what are we going to actually do and commit to doing? Um, so, so you can go through that. That way it is available wherever books are sold in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook format. Go to howtofightracism.com, howtofightracism.com. I also just started a newsletter. If you want to hear more of my ranting and ravings, uh, you can go to jamartisby.substack.com. Got it. Well, man, this uh, Josh is making notes of those for the show notes. This this conversation has been great. I I think just one um, one final question that I I think we have for you is um, for our podcast, but then also in general, um, who are the people that we should be talking to as a podcast to continue this conversation, and who are the people that uh, we should be reading and listening to? I mean, wh where should we go? beyond like if we, we read how to fight racism we read the color of compromise we listen to these things where else like who are the people we should be engaging with right now yeah you've already mentioned a few prop and drew hart uh i would say the ladies of truth's table michelle higgins akemini uwan and uh dr christina edmondson i would say uh shaniqua walker barnes um who, who's written a couple of brilliant books um uh, I listen to, if you just want to follow people on social media, Bree Newsom Bass is brilliant and has a really insightful analysis on uh, current events uh, from a racial perspective. So th there, there's no shortage of people or resources here. And I think y'all are already thinking uh, along the right lines. Yeah, I think we're, we have, we're having propaganda on in about a week. Uh, on the podcast so we were like really pumped about that too just as pumped yeah. as we were when we heard back from you so we're we're getting geared up for that <laughs> all right sounds good thank you all yeah thank, thank you, you jamar. jamar and uh listeners thank you so much for hanging out with us today uh thank you for being a part of this conversation and hopefully uh now you get up off your butt and go do something <laughs> about it so thank you and uh as always go caps and go blackhawks for me and jamar yeah, times two. I'm outnumbered today, fam, but it's all good. Peace and love, guys. Yeah.